Imagine a cricket trying to understand Mozart's symphony. And you get something of the flavor of what it means when Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says that natural man cannot understand these things. It is a work of the Spirit. It is a spiritual work. And that is to cultivate within us a desperate crying out, a calling for the Spirit to do just this work. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, here's how he wants to begin in chapter 1. I'm in verse 9. And so from the day we heard that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul just said, it's my prayer that you be filled with knowledge, filled with understanding, perception of your blessings and privileges in Christ so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so that you may be increasing in the knowledge of the Lord. It's like this circle. The circle begins with the illumining work of the Spirit that produces a greater perception of our blessings in Christ, which produces greater love, trust, and obedience, which produces greater understanding, which produces greater love, trust, and obedience. Sort of this circle that goes around. So that's what he says in in chapter 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, again, the theme of who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, what God has done for you in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. And from there, He he expands upon that. Put on the new you. It begins with this illumined perception of your blessings and privileges in Christ. And it goes from that to Put on the new self. Put off the old self and put on the new self. We see the same sort of thing in uh, Philippians chapter 4. We all know this section here. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to uh, be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So there's this union with Christ that he has. And that union with Christ allows Paul to endure any hardship, any brokenness, any poverty, any hunger, any sickness, any pain, any beating, any imprisonment, anything. It allows him to endure that with greater love, trust, and obedience because coming to Paul by way of this union with Christ is a greater knowledge of who he is in Christ. Peter will also exude for us a theology that is absolutely submerged in this principle. If you look to his first letter, we see it very clearly. Chapter 1, he begins enumerating who we are in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable, who by God's power would be guarded through faith 
though you have not seen him, you love him, etc., etc., etc. This is who you are in Christ, who you are in Christ. Therefore, verse 13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He continues on, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Chapter 2, put away malice, put away deceit, all of these things, put them away. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, verse 9, a holy nation. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles because you are sojourners and exiles. Submit to authority because of this, etc., etc. Chapter 4, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with this same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And we'll stop there. Because it should be quite obvious to us that the New Testament writers are consumed with this manner of thinking, with this way of thinking in which the reality of our union with Christ and the blessings that come to us by way of that union with Christ, the privileges that are ours, are what the Spirit uses to enlarge our hearts, to enlarge our perception, to clarify, to to give that laser beam focus on who we are in Christ, and that produces a greater love, trust, and obedience. So having established that, take a look at this little circle on the other side there. Paul makes mention of this in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Just to walk through it, here's how it kind of goes. The Spirit opens the eyes of the heart. The Spirit does His work of illumination, opens the eyes of the heart, as Jesus will say to Nicodemus, unless one be born again, he cannot see God. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we see God through these opened eyes, and that causes us to desire Him because we see Him as He is. Seeing Him as He is causes us to desire Him, causes us to see Him, not through the misperceptions of the world that see Him as judgmental, petty, or wrathful, or whatever, fill in whatever blank, or any of the misperceptions that our world has about God. We don't see those because we see Him as He is. Seeing Him as He is causes us to desire Him. And then having desired Him, we understand that our desire from God came from the Spirit's work of enlightenment. So therefore, we learn to cry out for more enlightenment. That's the whole point of verses 15 and 16. Paul says, you've been enlightened, so I pray that you'll be further enlightened. So knowing that this is the work of the Spirit that causes us to cry out for more of that work, which then in turn, as in faith, we apply ourselves to the cultivating of the soil of our heart and we present to the Spirit a more fertile soil for the implanting of His Word, it then causes us to then see Him even more brilliantly, more colorfully, more sharply, which then increases our desire for Him. And this is the process of sanctification. This is the process of growth in Christ. So now, having said this, there's numerous applications for us to make in our life. The first application, we would say, since this work is spiritual in nature, we must cultivate an attitude of desperate dependence upon the Holy Spirit to present Himself to us and to do this work. This is not a human work. This is a spirit work. Paul doesn't pray that the Ephesians would have a greater IQ. Paul doesn't pray, you know, I, I really hope all of you Ephesians learn to read so you can read your Bibles on your own. Paul prays that a 
spiritual work take place. That the Spirit would come and impart to them a greater perception, a clearer understanding of their blessings and privileges. So therefore, being a spiritual work, we must cultivate within ourselves a, a sense of desperate need that that spiritual work would take place. Imagine a grasshopper trying to perceive the, the wonders of a modern internal combustion engine. Or imagine a, a sparrow trying to perceive the marvel of a modern-day supersonic jet fighter aircraft. Or imagine, imagine a, uh, a cricket trying to understand Mozart's symphonies. And you get something of the flavor of what it means when Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says that natural man cannot understand these things. It is a work of the Spirit. It is a spiritual work. And that is to cultivate within us a desperate crying out, a calling for the Spirit to do just this work. If you came here this morning with your confidence placed in me and my preparation time and my whatever ability to deliver some kind of a sermon, if that's what you came with your confidence in this morning, then you will leave completely unfulfilled. You got a good breakfast. You saw some good friends. Maybe you feel better about yourself. But in a spiritual way, you will leave completely empty. If your confidence was in me, in my preparation, in my anointing. Now that's not to say that preparation is not important. Absolutely it is. And it's not to say that the anointing on a man to bring the Word of God is not important. It absolutely is. But if that's where your confidence is placed, you will receive no spiritual benefit from what you have come here for this morning. Your confidence must only be placed in a work of the Spirit who will take His words and use the preparation time of a man and use the anointing call of a man to illumine your heart with His Word. And that is the only spiritual benefit that's available to you this morning here in this building. Your confidence must be in the Holy Spirit's reliable pattern that when His people gather and an anointed man has prepared to bring God's Word to His people and in a spirit of submission and worshipfulness, His people submit themselves to the declaration of God's Word. That pattern of Him showing up and Him coming and Him illumining our hearts, that is the only pattern in which you can place your confidence. And so we must foster and nurture within ourselves this sense of desperate need. Do you feel that desperate need? When you come here, do you feel a desperate need? Or are you in a habit of just knowing, well, we're going to hear this and we're going to hear that and, and it's going to be good and I'm going to leave and then I'll do this in the afternoon. Or do you come here with this sense that 
God, you, you've, got, you've got to come. I need this. I need to hear from you. My soul needs your nourishment. And if you don't come and nourish me, then no man or no woman can. Cultivate within our, our hearts a sense of this desperate need for His coming and His giving to us. That is the only means. The receiving of the Word through any other means other than the Spirit produces nothing but Pharisees. And Paul knows that's not what the Ephesians need. The Ephesians do not need to understand the Scriptures more apart from the Spirit. Paul knows from his own experience because he was the Pharisee. He knows that receiving God's truth, receiving God's Word any other way than by the Spirit produces nothing but Pharisees. It is by His Spirit that His Word is imparted to us in a way that produces spiritual growth. To feed your mind and to feed your soul upon the Scriptures of God devoid of the work of the Spirit is to do nothing but make yourself an idol factory and a self-justification factory. It is only when the Spirit brings the Word to us that it comes in an illumining, growing type of manner. So you see the desperate need that we have? We could come and fill this building Sunday after Sunday and I could expound the Word of God to you all day long. And without the Spirit's work, all I'm doing is making you hard. All I'm doing is making you better at justifying yourself. All I'm doing is making you better at hating other sinners. It is only when the Spirit illumines that work in your heart that it has this growth mechanism in your, in your life. So that's a desperate need that we have. Secondly, since this work of the Spirit is the basis for all ongoing growth, we must cultivate a habit of prayerfully preparing prior to the hearing of the Word. I got too many P's. Sorry. We must cultivate a habit of prayerfully preparing to hear the Word prior to hearing of the Word. You know, in all of my time in ministry, one thing that I have seen is this whole idea that some Christians have that they can come to church in any old way they want, fight with their spouse on the way, yell at the kids on the way, hadn't opened their Bible since last Sunday, haven't prayed about a single thing that they heard about last Sunday, haven't put anything in place in their life that they heard about last Sunday, haven't read the Scriptures that are being preached, and they can walk in the door, and just like the first thing I do when I walk in that door is I flip that light on right there, they can walk in the door, and God's going to flip some kind of light on in their soul, and they're going to receive this blessing. That's a pervasive misunderstanding that I find everywhere I go, everywhere I've been, is that there are some who just believe that they can come any old way that they want, and they can hear the Word of God preached, and, and if God doesn't do this blessing in their heart, then, then they can leave thinking, well, I just didn't get anything out of that. Must be the preacher. Must be the music. Must be this, this other guy or, or girl in the, in the church that I'm sort of sideways with or whatever. Maybe I need a new church. Have you run across that? That we can just sort of show up any old way 
and just expect this work of the Spirit to happen on cue. Why? Because we've scheduled it for 10.15 on Sunday mornings or 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings or 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights. Whenever we've scheduled it, we just are to show up without having prepared ourselves by immersing ourselves in the Scriptures, particularly the Scriptures that we are being taught by the Spirit, by applying what the Spirit showed us last Sunday or previously, by praying about what we've received, praying about what we've heard, by preparing ourselves. You know, my family will tell you that they hear this prayer from me regularly. God, prepare us for Sunday. Prepare us for Wednesday. Prepare your church to receive what you will give them. We must cultivate this spiritual posture. Like what's your spiritual posture right now? I know your physical posture is you're sitting down, but what's your, what's your spiritual posture? Do you have a spiritual posture right now of kneeling? Kneeling before the Spirit as He works in this spiritual posture of, of, of desperation. Spirit, come. Have you prayed this week? Have you prayed for this service this week? Are you praying right now? We must cultivate this habit of prayerful preparation before the hearing of the Word. Thirdly, since the Holy Spirit only does this work in the realm of the knowledge of God, we learned that last week, we must cultivate a heart attitude of focused, exerted effort in the Word. Focused, exerted effort in the Word. And this is really where we come to that, that whole question of how is it that I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling while it's God who's working in me? How is it that Paul can say to the Corinthians, I worked harder than any one of you, yet it wasn't me, it was God working in me. How is that? How does that work? Our part in that is a focused, exerted giving of ourselves to the Word. This is why, you've heard me say this before, this is why there is no more beneficial thing you can do than the memorization of extended passages of Scripture, chapters and books. Because in the required wrestling over that, wrestling over committing those words to memory, committing those phrases to memory, that's how the Spirit's working in you. He takes that. It's His Word. He wrote it. It's His. He takes that and He uses that in your soul, in your heart, to produce what He's seeking to produce, which is greater love, trust, and obedience. Why is it that God has, has deemed that He will take our meager, fallen, pitiful little efforts at giving ourselves to His Scripture and He'll take that and He'll abundantly multiply it? Why is He determined to do that? This is His way. This is what He has told us. Why is it that Jesus would so often use these agricultural metaphors? Things like putting a seed in the ground that dies and then sprouts forth in this growth. Or things like harvest, abundant harvest that ye 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Or things like a grain of mustard seed that grows into a mustard bush so large that birds build a nest in it when mustard bushes don't grow to that size. And he's talking about some sort of supernatural growth. Why is it that Jesus will talk about yeast 
going into bread and expanding it? Why is it that Jesus will talk about fish harvests that burst the nets? Why is it that Jesus will take a loaf of bread and a fish and feed thousands of people with multiple baskets left over? Could it be that He wants us to grasp this principle, this seed that He was giving us? And the principle is God will take your meager, often misdirected, misguided, limited understanding way of giving yourself to the Scriptures, He will take that and He will abundantly multiply it when His Spirit comes in His illumining work that He does in our hearts. But you know what? He doesn't do it apart from that. I've yet to know of anybody that grew holy by osmosis, by sleeping with the Bible beside your bed and waking up the next morning holier. God doesn't do that. He has determined that He will use your effort and He will multiply that abundantly in your life. This is why we we read such things as 2 Timothy 2 and verse 7 where Paul says to Timothy, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think about what I say for the Lord will give you understanding. Now, notice two things that Paul didn't say. Paul didn't say, think about these things I'm teaching you and you'll understand them. What you got to do, Timothy, is just think about these things. Nor did Paul say, the Lord's going to give you understanding. He said, apply yourself to thinking about these things and the Lord will grant the understanding that you need. Paul wants us to embrace this principle in our hearts that if, if I come to God in faith, in faith, believing that He will take my meager efforts to applying myself to the Scriptures, that He will abundantly reward me with increased perception and understanding and illumining in the Scriptures, which will result in greater love, trust, and obedience. That's what He wants to foster within their feet. That's why He tells them that this is why He's praying for them. This is His point in telling them this. This is what he means when, he's, when he says to the Romans, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your, of your mind. Right before that, he said, submit your bodies as living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual worship. Submit your bodies as living sacrifices. That, that speaks of just a, a complete pouring out for God, a, a complete giving over to whatever efforts I can give to Him through my application of myself to the, to the Word, He will take that and in faith, He will multiply that. The sin of spiritual laziness has crippled the church. Has crippled the church. The body of Christ, by and large, has lost not only the ability, but the desire to give themselves to thinking hard about the deeper things of God. We've lost not only the ability to think well about the deeper things of God, but even the desire to do so. 
We have wrestled through chapter one of concepts that are all bigger than ourselves. The concepts of, of adoption and election and, and redemption of sin and inheritance. We've wrestled through these concepts and each time we have to say, we don't fully understand this. This is beyond us. But in the wrestling, the Spirit comes to us. In the giving of ourselves to the deeper things of God, the Spirit comes to us. That is where the Spirit wants to do His work. That is what the Spirit wants to take in your heart and use that to sprout forth this mustard bush of supernatural growth or this abundant harvest a hundredfold 